You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Romans 8 is where we're going to be today. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, it would be helpful to have that out and open on your lap where you can easily refer to that. And, uh, and as you're turning there, I want to uh, fill you in on a couple of things. One is that a few weeks ago, we um, asked you really just to, to begin praying with us. Um, we had begin to, or begun to look at a potential hire, um, a guy named Ryan Kearns, for kind of an executive deacon sort of a role that will take um, a lot of just the back-end organizational kind of part of our church and uh, begin to kind of work in that role. And so we've had a long interview process. We flew him in a couple of weeks ago to get to know him a little bit better. And we have just found a man that we feel like is humble, of high character, and has many of the giftings that I think are really going to help us as a church family. And so we have gotten to the point of saying yes to that. And he has said yes to that. And so we're going to give you more information on him. Again, his name is Ryan Kearns. Um, and we'll post some things on the city over the next couple of weeks about him just to give you a little better kind of inside track at who he is. Um, but he's looking at starting in mid-October. And so I just want to ask you to keep praying for that, that in that transition for him and for us, that the Lord would be in that and be helping us in that. And so all that is kind of underway right now. And secondly, if you are um, new to Stonegate, like as of you know, the last three or four months, we have Discover Stonegate starting next Sunday. It's a three-week class. It is for those who are new that can either get kind of an under-the-hood look at Stonegate. So if you're just wondering about vision and values and all those sorts of things, it's a great place to hear all that and to kind of get a sense of that. And it's also would be the next step toward covenant membership at our church family. So if you're interested in that and want that, um, man, you need to make sure you sign up ASAP for that. You can do that on the city. That is our whole kind of like place where we do our communication. So you can do that on the city or you can do that by emailing Travis Wyckoff at twyckoff at stonegate.church. So if you let him know, um, he'll get you RSVP'd and get you the information that you need. So that's starting next Sunday, though. So we sure hope that you'll jump in on that if you are uh, new to Stonegate. Okay, we're in Romans 8. Um, and let me just uh, kind of reset the table here. So when you think um, Romans 8, you know, we have started this set of sermons last April. And we spent nine or ten weeks in it. Then we took a break in the summers. We did a set of sermons through the Psalms. And today we are back. It is Romans 8, back online. And so we have uh, finally made it down to kind of verses 26, 27, right in there. And when you're thinking about Romans 8, um, I want you just to get into your mind the importance of this chapter. Let me, let me just kind of present it to you like this. If somebody were to come to you with a hypothetical question and they were to ask you, you're, you're about to be removed to a deserted island, yeah, right? It's like your worst nightmare. It's like just you and you get to take like a certain amount of things. And one thing you have to decide is you can take one book of the Bible. So not the whole Bible. You've got to just take one book of the Bible. If that ever happens to you, you need to look no further than Romans. It is the book. It, it, it's kind of that, that book of the Bible that has all the Bible contained in its 16 chapters. So if you read the 16 chapters of Romans, you're getting the biblical narrative from kind of Genesis to Revelation. Now let's just press this analogy one extra step. Let's say they, they look at you now and say, you don't get to take a whole book of the Bible with you. You get to take one chapter of the Bible with you. That's all you get on the deserted island. If that ever happens to you, don't worry, you're prepared now. 
you need to look no further than Romans chapter eight. It is called by many the greatest, uh, the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the Bible. And I think that's true. It's the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the Bible. And that is what we have had the privilege of just walking through kind of verse by verse. So now we're to verses 26 and 27 that read like this. Likewise, that's pointing back to verse 16 and 17, where the spirit is helping, um, convincing us, giving us a felt sense of our adoption in Jesus. So likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I want to take this passage in two parts. Two parts. Here is part one. Part one is going to be weakness as a reality. Part one, we're just kind of working through, kind of trying to think through how do we unpack what it is that Paul is communicating through this text to us. Part one, weakness as a reality. Just look at verse 26 again. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now that word weakness is walking us into part of what it means to be a human being. So just think about what the word weakness means. Like if somebody were to ask you, what does it mean to be weak? How would you answer that? Now, here's how I would go about trying to like work that out. You know, in the New Testament, it's interesting that the idea of weakness wears a lot of different outfits. It shows itself in a lot of different ways in the New Testament. But when you cut the idea of weakness to its core, here's what the idea of weakness means. It means to be deficient. If you're saying you are weak, you are saying that you lack something. These sort of words could be used as synonyms for weakness. So rather than, than weak, we could say inadequate. We could say limited. We could say vulnerable, fragile. The word needy would describe what it means to be weak. Now, isn't it interesting that all of those words are describing what it means to be a human being? To be a human being means that you are weak. It means that you are limited. Part of what it means to be created and not the creator means that you're vulnerable means that you don't have all the answers. Part of what it means to be created, not the creator, it's showing us, it's telling us, part of what it means to be created is we are weak, we are not sovereign. We do not have everything that we need for life. We are deficient. It's part of what it means to be a human being, a created human being. Now look at the, the phrasing of verse 26. I think there's one interesting thing just to, to point out here. The wording. He doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, um, the Spirit helps in your weakness is, plural. It's not the way he says it. It doesn't say he helps you in your weaknesses. He says he helps you in your weakness. Now think about what that is conveying. By saying in your weakness, Paul is not conveying, or one of the things he is not saying here is that you can kind of confine your weakness into a few areas of your life. He's not saying, hey, look at the totality of your wife. Do you see in these couple of areas, do you see your weaknesses over there? That's not what Paul's saying. Rather than that, he is saying, do you see the totality of your life? When you see the totality of your life, do you see how everything in your life is permeated by weakness? Do you see the, the issue? He's not saying, hey, there's a few areas that you're weak. He is saying, here's what you are. You are weak. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means to be created. You are this. You know, it's interesting in Western kind of uh, thought that the idea of an Achilles heel is a popular way. It's an idiom that we use to say about someone, you're vulnerable. 
This is like your particular weak spot. It's their Achilles heel. Now, what Paul is saying here is not that you have a, you know, in your life somewhere an Achilles heel. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying, look at your life. Do you see this about your life? That you are an Achilles heel. He's not just saying that you have some weaknesses in your life. He's saying your life is made up of weakness. The totality of your life, bleeding through every little area, every little moment, every decision, every interaction that you have, bleeding through every one of those moments, saturating every one of those moments is the word weakness. That is how deep and pervasive our weakness goes. Now, I love how one pastor put this. He said, weakness is not one experience among other experiences in our life. That is not the way weakness works in our life. Weakness is not one experience we have among others. Weakness, on the other hand, is the platform on which we have all of our experiences. Do you see the difference there? He's saying that weakness is not just a thing that you kind of every now and then interact with in your life. He's saying it is the platform that as you're living your life, you are feeling in every moment, in every situation, in every circumstance. Weakness is the platform on which we have all of our experiences. He goes on to say, we've never known one nanosecond of non-weakness all of our lives. Do you know that about you? that you have never taken one breath that was not infused by weakness. I love that. He says, we've never known one nanosecond of non-weakness all of our lives. So then the question becomes, well, how are we weak? I mean, how, how does weakness play out in our life? Maybe a better question is how aren't we weak, right? I mean, wh what in your life do you look at and don't think there is inadequacy there? I'm limited here. I'm needy here. I'm weak here. Weakness is in every part of our life. So, so it really is a better question just to say, where aren't we that? Because it's everywhere in our life. But if you're just teasing that out, I mean, we could talk about this for days. We could talk about the idea of being morally weak. I mean, this is like a part of what it means to be a fallen human being, isn't it? Do you remember in uh, Mark chapter 14, where Jesus looks at Peter, James, and John, he has them in the garden and he's praying. This is right before he's betrayed. And he looks at Peter, James, and John, and he says, you need to watch and pray, Peter, James, and John. You need to pay attention. You need to watch and pray. And do you remember why he says that? Here's his reasons for that. You need to watch and pray. Why? Because the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's re-alerting them, reawakening them to their weakness. He's trying to, to tell them, hey, you need to pay attention to this. You need to see that weakness pervades every moment of your life, that as you walk around in a fallen world, weakness is always with you. He's looking at them and saying, yes, the spirit in you is, is willing. It is so willing. That, that redeemed part of you, that part of you that I've rescued and set free from the bondage of sin and corruption, yes, that part of you is so willing. But here's your problem. That flesh in you, that part of you that's still at war with me, that part of you that's been dethroned, but it's not yet destroyed, that part of you that's still there that doesn't want to submit to me, doesn't want to, to obey me, that part of you, that part of you makes you so weak. Weakness is everywhere in your life. I mean, in essence, Jesus is looking at James, Peter, and John, and he's saying, we, we need to be alerted to this sobering reality, guys. Here, here's the reality. There is not a single sin. You can't dream of a single sin that you are immune to. That's how weak you are. The flesh has made you that weak. There, there is no such thing as being immune to sin in your life. Weakness is so pervasive that, that you are prone to it all. 
This is what he's trying to convince them of here. Now, let me clarify one very important thing. Being weak isn't the same as being sinful. So so to say that I am weak isn't saying I am sinful inside of like, you know, they're not a one-to-one direct relationship. They're two different categories of things. So being weak does not equate into you being a sinful person. What being weak does is make you susceptible to sin. Weakness is actually, as we're about to see, a thing that is praised in the Bible, a thing to be gloried in in the Bible. So weakness is not sin, but weakness does make us vulnerable to sin. This is what he is trying to show James, Peter, and John. The reason that you need to watch and pray is because you are susceptible to sin. All sin. You, you can't think of a sin that is so big, Peter, James, and John, that you couldn't do it. Now, let's just take a moment here. Do you know that about your life? Think of the worst sin that you can possibly imagine a human being committing. Do you know that you are prone and you are susceptible and that you are not immune to that particular sin? That there is not a single sin out there that is too great for a person just like you to fall into. Do you know that about you? Or are you living with the illusion that no, I'm stronger than that. But not better than that. He doesn't know who I am. There's no way I could do that. I'm just saying this. Jesus is saying you could do that. That you're that weak. The flesh in you makes you that weak. That you're susceptible to all sin. And it's not just Jesus who says that. This is really one of the things the Bible is trying to convince us of throughout its pages. I mean, think about the best people you can think of in the Bible. Save Jesus. Other than Jesus, the best people you can think of in the Bible. Isn't it ironic that the best people you can think of in the Bible have some of the worst things on their resume? Think about Abraham for a moment. That brother looked at his wife twice and said, to save my own skin, I'm gonna give you to that man. That guy ought to be shot, shouldn't he? That guy ought to be shot for doing that. That's crazy. Think about Moses. He murdered a man. He he was prone to anger. And in just a moment of rage and anger, he murdered a guy. Think about David. Just in a moment of weakness, this is where sin just invaded that weakness. He's so susceptible to these things. He commits adultery and then to try to cover his tracks, he kills the lady's husband. I mean, that's David. He wrote a lot of the Psalms, did a lot of really good things for God. Now, what is the Bible trying to show you and I in those moments? It's not trying to show us that the worst of us are capable of those sorts of sin. It's trying to show all of us that the best of us are capable of those sorts of sins. Do you see, what it, do you see that? The Bible is trying to look at you and, and me and, and convince us that the very best of us, the strongest of us, that even that person is capable of the worst of things. This is how deep our weakness goes. You know, every time we sing that old hymn, Come Thou Fount, I just so resonate with that, that, you know, those couple of lyrics when the, the hymnist wrote, prone to wonder. Don't you just feel that about your heart? That it is prone to stray directly off from the path of God. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's just an honest admission of weakness. And that's a reality in all of our lives. We are morally weak. I mean, that's, our morality is one of the areas where our weakness just invades that. But it's every area. I mean, we could just spend forever here. We could talk about our emotional weakness. Are you not amazed when you look at your life at how you can feel this way in one minute and in the next second, you can feel the exact opposite? You can be joyful in this minute and be despairing in the next. 
I mean, it's just amazing. That's a, that's a signpost, that emotional weakness there. It's a signpost pointing us to our weakness. That's just the Lord showing us how weak we are. We could talk about intellectual weakness that we all have. We could talk about physical weakness. But the point is this, weakness is real. It is deep in our life. It is pervasive, affecting everything that we do. To just restate it again, it is infused into every single moment. We as a human being have never known one nanosecond of non-weakness. That's how deep and real our weakness is. That's point one, weakness as a reality. Here comes point two, weakness as the way. So part of what Paul is showing us in Romans 8, 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. Part of what he is showing us is one, the reality of our weakness. This is what we are. We are weak people, but that's not all he is showing us. He is also showing us that weakness is actually the way forward in the Christian life. And listen, it is the only way forward in the Christian life. I'm going to just say it as straight as I can, and then we'll kind of try to un, you know, unpack that and work, work that out. But here's the straightest way I can say it. There is only one way to strength, according to Jesus. There is only one way to strength. And that one way is through embracing weakness. There is only one way to strength, and that's through embracing weakness. You see, we just all need to feel this today. There is only one way to strength, and that is through the willing embrace of weakness. Now, isn't that a paradox? You know, when I became a Christian, it was one of the, the interesting things I had to come to grips with was how many paradoxes, new ways of thinking, ways of thinking that are, are just counter to how I would naturally want to think. I just had to come to grips with how many new ways of learning there were, new things I had to embrace, new paradoxes that I had to own. I mean, just think about these, you know, throughout the scriptures. A paradox. According to Jesus, the way up in life is by going down. That's a par- Nobody thinks that way. Who, who, who thinks that way? Who are you just going to walk down the street and meet that thinks, you know, the way that you really get up in this life is to go down. Nobody thinks that way. That's one of those paradoxes that we have to embrace as we follow Jesus. Here's another one. The way to life is through death. Who thinks that way? Who thinks that by dying, that is a painful thing, that by dying to ourselves, that life is on the other side of that. Nobody thinks that way. It's one of those paradoxes we have to embrace. And here comes another, one of those paradoxes is to follow Jesus. Well, we have to learn, we have to embrace. It's the paradox that goes like this. The only way to be strong is to willingly embrace our weakness. That is the only way to strength. The willing embrace of weakness. That is the only way forward. I love uh, J.I. Packer. He wrote a book years ago on 2 Corinthians. And the title of the book was Weakness is the Way. Now there's just so much just embedded into that title. Weakness is the way. That is the only way forward. But in one moment, he says this about weakness. He says the way of true spiritual strength. So, so if you want to grow the, the, the way toward that sort of strength that we're all wanting and so desperately need, the way of true spiritual strength leading to real fruitfulness in Christian life and service. So who doesn't want that? Real strength? Who doesn't want fruitfulness in Christian life and service? Here's the way to that, he says. It's the way of humble, self-distrustful, 
It's that, this humble, self-distrustful way of continually recognized weakness. He's saying the same thing. The only way forward in the Christian life is to willingly embrace our weakness. Now, isn't that paradoxical? I mean, everything in me thinks like this. If you want to be strong, be strong. It's that simple, right? I mean, that's, that's the way we would all think. If you want strength, they like, go get in the gym and be strong. That's how, you get, that's how you become strong. But Jesus is saying that's not true. Everything in me thinks like this, though. He, you know, the person with the loudest words, the person with the, the strongest fist, the person with the biggest guns, that's the person who's strong. But if we're ever going to see what it means to follow Jesus, one of the paradoxes, if we're going to do this well, we have to learn this lesson, that the only way to strength is through weakness. The way to strength is not through your strength. The way to strength is through your weakness and Jesus showing himself strong in, in your weakness. That is the only way to strength. That is the only pathway to what we so desperately need, strength. Maybe we could say it this way. The stronger you think you are, the weaker you are. Isn't that a paradox? The stronger you think you are, the, the more you really think you have life by the tail, the more you think all that, it's showing that you're really weak. That the stronger you think you are, the weaker you are. The weaker you know yourself to be, and let me just put this in there, show yourself to be, the weaker you know yourself to be and to show yourself to be, the stronger you are. I mean, that is the paradox that Paul is working out here in Romans 8, 26. The stronger you think you are, the weaker you are. The weaker you know yourself to be, the stronger you're actually becoming in that moment. Now, let me make another, this is a massively important clarification. Maybe the most important little moment of the morning comes right now in the next few minutes. Let me clarify this. The way forward is not just in knowing that you're weak. Okay, so that's an important thing to, to consider. It's not, it's not less than that, but it is more than that. The way forward is not just in knowing that you're weak. I mean, th just think about your own life. Who in here doesn't know you're weak? You have failed you more than anyone else has ever thought about failing you, right? We all know that we're weak. Knowing that we're weak is not the issue. What we do with us, with that, that knowledge, what we do with that awareness that we're weak, that is the issue. And welcome to our problem. Here's the problem we all have in this room this morning. Just think through this. What do we do with that internal sense that we all have that we are weak? Do you know what most of us have spent our life doing? We have spent our life trying to cover our weakness and then convince the rest of the world that we're really strong. That's the problem. So it's not just in knowing that you're weak, it's embracing that weakness where other people can actually see it. That's what it means to embrace your weakness. That's what it means to actually allow your weakness to be something Jesus can make strong. It's not just knowing that you're weak, but willingly embracing that weakness in a way that others can see it. One of the, uh, the most interesting conversations I've had in the last year of my life was a friend of mine and we were talking about, uh, he was just kind of unpacking the script that he kind of just brings with him into every day of his life. And as he was unpacking kind of the, just the, when he, you know, he wakes up and just his voice, that internal voice just starts going. And he was unpacking what that internal voice sounded like to a friend of his. And the friend looked back to him and said, I want to give that, that voice a name. Here's the name of that script that you have that's constantly going. That, the name of that script is the undiscovered failure script. That's how you're living. You're living 
like an undiscovered failure. Now think about how, what that script sounds like. That script sounds something like this. You're weak and you know you're weak. Deep down, you know you're a failure because you failed you more than anyone else has failed you. So you know what you are. You know you're weak. You know you're a failure. But you know who doesn't know that? All of those other people out there. And you're working so hard to try to cover all of those weaknesses, all of those failures, and to present yourself with strength. But do you know what's going to happen one day? All of those things you're trying to bury where no one can see them, one of these days, people are actually going to see them. And they're going to discover what you have long known about yourself, that you're a failure. Now, if we could just get inside one another's hearts this morning, that right there would be at work in virtually every one of us in the room. We know we're a failure. We know that we're weak. We know those things. And rather than acknowledging our weakness, you know what we're trying to do? We're trying to bury that weakness and present a false strength to others. And you know what that's gonna do if we keep doing that? Kill us. That's what it's gonna do. I mean, this, this is the ironic thing. Covering our weakness, so making that willful choice to be an undiscovered failure, d- doing that, covering our weakness actually makes us weaker. Isn't that ironic? I mean, this is the reason that many of us are so fragile, that I can be so fragile, that I can be so insecure and fearful about people really knowing me because I know me. I don't like people knowing me sometimes, right? But it's like in in that moment of of trying to cover our weakness, of willfully choosing to be an undiscovered failure, in that moment, we are becoming weaker. But here is the ironic thing. When we embrace our weakness and move from an undiscovered failure to a discovered failure, the, the craziest thing happens. In that moment, we are actually growing in strength. Now, wouldn't that be an unbelievable moment for us in the room today? What if we made the choice to go from undiscovered failure where we're just growing and deepening in our weakness to a discovered failure where we're actually growing in strength? Now, I am praying that in the next one minute that the Lord presses what I'm about to say upon you. I think that for many of us in the room, if you're wondering, which I think a lot of us probably are, what would it look like for me to take next steps with Jesus? Like, I wanna know Jesus more. I want to experience him in deeper and fresher and new and bigger and brighter ways. I want God to take me to new pastures with him. What, What would it look like for me to take a step in that direction? Do you know what I think that step would be for virtually everyone in the room? I think this would be the step. You go home today and you look yourself in the mirror and you find a weakness. Shouldn't take you long, right? You find a weakness there. And rather than covering that weakness, you reveal it to someone. And do you know what I think you would find? Is the grace of God would come crashing into your life in that moment. The moment you go from undiscovered failure to discovered failure, here comes grace. Here comes the help we so desperately need. Now, why is that true? Why is it in the moment of a willful embrace of our weakness that grace comes in? Why is that? Here's the answer. Weakness is the way because embraced weakness readies us for help. Now, just think about that. Weakness is the way 
Because embraced weakness is the thing that readies us for help from God. Like it's what makes us ready for that. Now just, I mean, think about your own life right now. Who in here would not say, I need help from God today? Who in here would not like be in a position of desperately needing and wanting help from God today? I want that. I really want God's help today in my life. Now the question becomes, well, where is that help located? How does that help come into our life? Look at Romans 8, 26 again. Let's just try to answer the question. Where does the Holy Spirit help us? Where is that? Answer, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our what? Weakness. Now, isn't that crazy? I mean, I'm just expecting when I read that for it to say, you know where the Spirit's going to help us and really show himself to be awesome? When we show that we're awesome. But that's not what it says. It says here is when you're going to receive help from God. It's not when you feel like you've got the, you know, the world by the tail and that you're awesome and that you've got everything you need to make your life work. That is not when you're going to receive help. As a matter of fact, when you feel like that about your life, when you feel adequate, it is making you immune to help from God. But on the other hand, when your hands go up in the air and you are reduced to weakness and you know it, you have just created a doorway for the grace of God to come smashing into your life. Now, isn't that wild? That, that what Paul is communicating to us is when you feel weak and you embrace that weakness, you have just opened up the door and you have just invited the grace of God to come in. You have invited the mercy of God to come in and to give you the help that you so desperately need. I love how one author, how he said it. He said, when we are reduced to helplessness, the Holy Spirit will help us. Now, isn't that a great just encouragement for all of us today? When you are past the point of you thinking you've got all of your life figured out and you can kind of make this thing happen. When you get reduced beyond that, and God just kind of breaks you beyond that and you're reduced to all I know about my life is that I need, that I am weak, that I am reduced to utter helplessness. That is the exact moment when the doorway has been sprung in your life and the Holy Spirit comes in with what you need. And now, now hear me on, I, I think this is just so helpful to consider. Paul is not talking kind of theoretically. He is not saying, hey, I read about this in a book one day and let me share what I read to you. Paul is writing from experience here. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in, in that chapter, Paul is just unpacking his weakness and he says, man, I've got a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that is, but it represents weakness in his life. And Paul says, man, I prayed that that thorn in the flesh would go away for, the, for God to remove it. Three times I asked him that. And do you remember how Jesus responded to him in 2 Corinthians 12? Here it goes. Jesus comes to him and says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect. Paul, not in your strength. That's not where I'm going to look good. Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. I mean, it's as if Jesus comes to Paul and says, Paul, I know you're asking for me to remove your weakness, but Paul, I can't remove your weakness. And here's the reason. It is in that particular weakness that the doorway is open in your life for my grace to come into your life. So Paul, we'd be crazy to remove that weakness. And you know what the crazy thing is? By the time Paul writes 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he has learned that lesson. 
not just in a, in a book somewhere, but he has learned it by experience that, that God really does show himself to be strong in Paul's weakness, in his failures. I mean, this is how Paul goes on to finish that chapter. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. How many people have you met that say crazy things like that? I'll tell you the answer for me, not enough. And I'm a part of the not enough. And it kind of makes me sick. I'm asking the Lord to help me in this. But Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. What if we became a church known for boasting in our weaknesses? He says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Why? So that Christ's power may rest upon me. Do we want the power of God in this place? Here's the way that the power of God works. We start boasting in our weakness. Paul goes on in verse 10. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is not theory for Paul. That is experience for Paul. God has shown himself to be true. Paul has been reduced to utter helplessness. And you know what Paul has found in the middle of utter helplessness? The help of the Holy Spirit the help of the Holy Spirit. It's in the moment when we are reduced to helplessness that the Spirit comes in and gives us the help that we so desperately need. Now, when I think about Romans 8, one of the reasons that we wanted to preach through Romans 8 is because we wanted to clarify what the Holy, who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. And you know, it's interesting. When I think about just church folk in general, I think that most people have a pretty decent idea of who God the Father is and what God the Father does. Who God the Son is, Jesus, and what God the Son has done and is doing. And I think while most church folk have a pretty decent idea that there is a person in the Godhead called the Holy Spirit, I think we are very ambiguous on what it is that the Spirit of God actually does. I just don't think people have thought that through and know and have figured out and done the work of real, like what is it that the Holy Spirit does? And one of the things that I love about Romans 8 in general and this particular passage, you know, in particular, is it shows us, it's telling us, this is what the Spirit of God does in your life. This is his role in your life. And verse 26 shows us this. Paul is saying, he's defining the role of the Holy Spirit and here's his definition for it. He helps us. When you're weak and you know you're weak, it's creating a doorway for the Spirit of God to come into your life. And here's what the Spirit of God does when he comes into your life. He helps you. That is the job description of the Holy Spirit. He has come to help you. May I help you. That, that is the word of the Holy Spirit to you and I and to every son and daughter of God. He has come to help us. Now the question becomes, well, how does he do that? How does the Holy Spirit help us? Now there is a lot we could say, but I wanna start with the biggest thing that we need to say about it. When you're asking the question, how does the Holy Spirit help us? The most important thing you can know about that role of helping of the Holy Spirit is this. The Holy Spirit's primary role, the primary way that he helps us is by revealing Jesus to us. This is the number one thing he does. He takes Jesus out of theory out of abstract land somewhere up there and he brings Jesus right down in front of us and presses who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, God's love for us because of Jesus. He presses all of that deep down into our soul so that we actually feel that. This is what he does. He reveals Jesus to us. This is how he says it. This is how Jesus says it in John 15, 26. But when the helper, the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. 
then Jesus gives his job description. He's the helper. Okay, that's what he's called there. But then here's the job description. He will bear witness about me. He is going to reveal things about me that you need to know. That's what Jesus is saying. I love how J.I. Packer in his book on the Holy Spirit talks about the role of the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit has a floodlight ministry. I think it's a really helpful analogy. Think about what a floodlight does. A floodlight is not meant to draw any attention to itself. Typically, a floodlight is gonna be hidden somewhere where you don't even get to see the floodlight. But the floodlight hidden in the shadows shines light onto the thing that it wants you to see and to draw your attention to the thing that it wants you to see. And Packer is saying, that is what the role of the Holy Spirit is in our life. The Holy Spirit stands in the shadows, never seeking to draw attention to himself, and the Holy Spirit shines a light from the shadows up onto the Father and the Son, diverting our attention away from Him and onto the Father and Son so that we will see with more clarity who Jesus is and what He has done for us. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. He reveals Jesus to us. He operates like a floodlight, diverting attention away from Him and to Jesus and the Father. This is what the Spirit does. Now, I wanna spend the rest of our time, just the next couple of minutes here, teasing out some particular ways that the Spirit helps us. So if the biggest thing we could say is that He helps us in our weakness and He does that by revealing Jesus, what are some particulars? Let me just run through a few of these and we'll be finished here. How does the Holy Spirit help us? First, He brings us to new life in Jesus. He brings us to new life. There would not be a single Christian ever in history apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. There'd never be a Christian without the Holy Spirit's work in your life, my life. I mean, I don't know how you would describe your conversion, but here's how Ephesians 2 describes it, how Paul describes it there. He says, you were dead in your sin. Being dead means that you're unresponsive to God, right? It means that, that, you, don't have, that you don't have the ability or capacity to respond to him. You're dead in your sin. But then one day the Holy Spirit comes into your life, into your weakness, into your death. He comes into your heart and he breathes life into your rebel dead heart. And that heart for the first time begins to beat and it gasps its first breath of air of the love of God. For the first time ever, your, your heart like breathes in a sense of like, I love God. I love Jesus. That is the moment of your conversion. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, coming into your weakness and producing life, helping you in your weakness. And, and there's some of us in the room this morning who you need that work of the Holy Spirit to come into your life, to rescue you and to redeem you, to apply the work of Jesus to your life, his life, death, and resurrection. And do you know the only thing you need this morning to be a recipient of that sort of grace in the Holy Spirit? The only thing you need is to be weak, the only thing you need this morning is just to know that you need it. And if you'll open up your lives knowing that you need it, God the Father would stand so ready to save and rescue you this morning. This is one of the things the Spirit of God does. He brings new life. Here's another thing the Spirit of God does. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. This is John 16, verse eight. And when he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and, and judgment. Now, what is conviction? Listen to Ray Ortland describe this. I love the metaphors he uses here. Conviction of sin, what is it? Conviction of sin is the lance of the divine surgeon piercing the infected soul, 
releasing the pressure, letting the infection pour out. Conviction of sin is a health-giving injury. Conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit being kind to us by confronting us with the light we don't want to see and the truth we're afraid to admit and the guilt we'd prefer to ignore. Conviction of sin is the severe love of God overruling our compulsive dishonesty, our willful blindness, and our favorite excuses. Conviction of sin is the violent sweetness of God opposing the sins lying comfortably undisturbed in our lives. Conviction of sin is our merciful God declaring war on the false peace we often settle for. Conviction of sin is our escape from malaise into joy, from attending church to worship, from faking it to, uh, to authenticity. And I love this last line. Conviction of sin with the forgiveness of Jesus pouring over our wounds, that conviction of sin is life. Now, who doesn't need the Spirit of God to produce that in them, to do that for them? Uh, many of you know Kevin Hill. He's one of our pastors here um, at Stonegate. And I think Jimmy mentioned this last week, but uh, Kevin has been on just quite the journey over the last about month of his life. Going back about a year ago, he went to the doctor for a random kind of thing. As he's leaving, he asked the doctor to check out this little you know, bump that he kind of feels in his cheek. And the doctor checks it out. Hey, you've got nothing to worry about. No worries. Sleep well. A year later, he's back at a different doctor and just not for that reason, for a different reason. And he just again asked, hey, would you just, I noticed this about a year ago. Would you just take a, just feel this and see what you think? She feels and it's like, I don't like that. That ain't, that ain't good. We need to get that checked out. So uh, about three weeks ago, she uh, says, let's, that was three weeks ago. She says, let's go get a biopsy done on that. So about two weeks ago, so two weeks ago this last Friday, Kevin Hill had a biopsy on that, uh, that uh, you know, thing in his cheek. And the doctor comes back and says to him, we've got a problem. It's cancer. And it's serious cancer. Now, one of the, just the interesting moments that Kevin and I had as we were just processing that is just how strange it is to be aware that you have been living for at least the last year of your life with something inside of you that can kill you. And if you want the metaphor for what conviction is, it's the doctor sitting across from Kevin, looking him in the eye and saying, let me tell you something that you don't even wanna know about you, but you need to know about you. That, that's conviction. It hurts, it even wounds. Oftentimes we don't even wanna know it, but that is what conviction of sin looks like. It's when the spirit of God comes to us and says to us things that are painful, things that we don't wanna know, things that we'd rather bury our head in the sand and just kind of live without. But it's this loving wound that is meant to save us from something called sin that's going to kill us. And how many of us need that this morning? How many of us just need to cry out for the spirit to, just to say to him, Holy Spirit, would you come and show me the things that I don't want to see, but I know are going to kill me if I don't see them? How many of us need that this morning? Yes, it's a wound. But yes, you remember the last line there? Conviction of sin with the forgiveness of Jesus pouring over that wound of conviction. It produces life in us. Man, are we thankful for that life-giving work of the Spirit called conviction? What else does the Spirit do? He comforts us. This is John 15, 26. It's interesting in John 15, 26 that the Holy Spirit is called our helper. 
That, that's, that's, what the, that, that's his name in John 15, 26. That's what Jesus calls him. But the Greek word for helper there, that, that Greek word translated helper, is a rich and robust word. And so if you read various English translations, you see how rich that word is by the various ways that people have brought that word into English. So in the ESV, it's helper. In the NIV, it's advocate. In the older NIV, it's counselor. Eugene Peterson translates it friend. The Holy Spirit is a friend to us. The King James Version translates it comforter. Now just think about that. Comfort is not just something the Holy Spirit gives us. It's the name that he goes by. Isn't that a great thought? That is, that is, that is God the Spirit's name. He is the comforter. I mean, I just wonder how many of us so desperately need that. Kevin, he got the word two weeks ago, uh, Friday, that he had cancer. The next Tuesday, so like last Tuesday, he went to do a PET scan to see how bad the cancer was gonna be. And he knew, he just done his enough research to know this is serious business. If it's stage one or two, it means it's probably operable. They can get it all and he's gonna be okay. If it's stage three or four, the way Kevin describes it is it's probably gonna be a three to five year, terribly hard road to death. And we just got a chance to kind of just walk with Kevin this week and sit with him in that My staff meeting on uh, Tuesday. We just had a good cry together, prayed together. We just had that kind of moment of just the roller coaster that is finding you may have something in you that's gonna kill you like now. Like that, I mean, it's that moment. And I remember one time this week calling him and just like, man, Kevin, thinking about you and dude, how are you? And his response was, you know, I'm up and down, but I have a strange peace. Now, what is that? What, what, what is producing in that craziness a strange peace? Answer. It is the Holy Spirit doing what only the Holy Spirit can do in a human heart. It is convincing a human heart that God really does love them, even in the midst of their life being turned upside down. It is the Spirit of God bringing the abstract love of God that so often stays up there down into our hearts and pressing it all the way down so that we feel that love of God that we actually know that God is not against us. He's really for us. That we know there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not death, nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor, nor height. Nor, there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. It's the Holy Spirit doing that. And do you know when the Holy Spirit does that? When the Holy, when the Holy Spirit brings the love of God into a felt experience, do you know what that produces in people? Do you know what that produces in Christians? It produces heroic Christians. Weak Christians become strong when the Spirit of God does that. He comforts us. By the way, I left the, the, the first service hanging until like the very end of the announcements. I've, I've got it written like in big words out here. Kevin Hill found out Friday he had stage two. Aren't we grateful for that? Yes. That was like the very last thing I ended up telling the first service people. I like ran them off the cliff and left them there for way too long. What else did the Spirit do? He empowers us. Isn't, isn't it amazing how hard it is just to be faithful to Jesus? To be obedient? Isn't it amazing how hard that is? Do you know our only hope of being faithful to Jesus is the empowering work of the Spirit? 
I think your only hope for, for living faithfully to Jesus today is that the Holy Spirit would empower you today. This is what Acts 1.8 teaches us, but you will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That is the only way you're going to be empowered for the things that God has called you to do. If you're married, to love your spouse. If you're not married, to live well as a single. If you've been hurt by people, to not hold grudges and grow bitter, but forgive. The only way you are going to live faithful to Jesus is if the Holy Spirit today empowers you. What else does the Spirit of God do? We'll just end with this one. He helps us pray. Isn't it amazing that our weakness is so pervasive that it even affects our praying? I mean, this is what Paul's getting at in this passage. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. How? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What Paul is addressing here, the weakness in our praying, is that we just don't even know what to pray. Have you ever been to that place where life is so blurry and hard and ambiguous that you don't even know what it would look like to pray well, to pray rightly? You know, I mean, I think how most of us think is something like this. We're gonna kind of make our life work and do our thing and we're kind of gonna be strong and make it happen out there. And then all of a sudden we kind of have moments where we know that we're, we're reduced to like, we've got to pray. It's the only thing we can do. It's like life can be so hard sometimes that we just learn really quickly our doing isn't going to do it, so we're going to pray. But what happens in that moment when life is beating you up so badly that all you can do is pray and you find yourself at that moment when, when you know this is the only thing I've got left. I'm just going to pray. But you can't even pray. You're so weak in that moment, you, you don't even know what to pray. What do we do then when our last kind of our last ditch effort of what are we going to do when we run out of options, pray, doesn't even come through for us. What are we going to do then? Answer, Paul says, the Holy Spirit will help you. That's what will happen. When you embrace your weakness like that and you can't even get a word out, here's what will go down. The Holy Spirit will come into that moment and he will take the groans that you can't even get out He'll take those groans and he'll translate those groans up into the God the Father. And God the Father will look at those groans because of the work of the Spirit interceding for us. And he will look at even our groans. When we've been reduced to just groans, God the Father will look at, on that and say, that is pleasing in my sight. That's the help of the Holy Spirit. Where would we be without the Holy Spirit in our lives? I'm going to end by saying this. Stonegate, weakness is a reality in your life and my life. Weakness walks with you and walks with me as a lifelong companion. But that weakness is also your way forward. Embracing rather than bearing that weakness is the only way to strength. And it's right there at the moment of embraced weakness that the Spirit says to you, I'll help you. I'd love to come in and help you. I'd love to show my strength over on the top of your weakness. And may we be a people who embrace that. Amen. Let's pray together. I'm going to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit to press into you the things that would be helpful and 
wipe away the things that wouldn't be. I just want to leave you by just asking you to picture what, what if the Holy Spirit today is looking at you and your weakness? And what if the Holy Spirit's words to you and I today are, may I help you? Can you just picture the Spirit of God saying that to you? May, may, I, may I come on into that and help you? Hey, I know you're struggling. I know you're fearful. I know your kids are wayward. I know that you feel abandoned by God. I know that God seems distant to you. I know you're struggling with that sin. I know that that addiction just, it just feels like it's never gonna go. I I know that. May I help you? Can you just, can you just allow the spirit of God to ask you that today? May, May I help you? And do you know the wonderful thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ? is that at that precise moment where we hold up our hands and acknowledge and embrace our weakness, it is in that moment that the Spirit moves in and brings the help that only He can give. So, oh God, would you help us today? And Father, I pray that we would be a people who would willingly embrace our weakness And God, I just know I need help in that. I feel like I have an allergic reaction to embracing weakness. And Father, will you just help me in that weakness today? God, will you help us be a people who rather than hiding what we know to be true about us, will drag it into the light. We'll go from being undiscovered failures to being discovered failures who God has helped who God has shown himself powerful through. So, oh God, give us the courage to go there. Give us the the courage to pursue that. God, make us a church known, known for the humble embracing of weakness. God, by your grace, would you do that? It's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.